Hey, good morning. My name's Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at Bethel. And uh, if you're visiting, I'll add my welcome to Todd's. We're glad you're here. And um, uh, you're here just in time, actually. We're, we're in a study on the uh, book of Romans, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And we are in chapter 3 at what I think is arguably probably the greatest chapter maybe in all of the whole Bible. And so uh, we've been looking the last uh, seven weeks at um, sin and depravity and talking about how bad you are and, um, and how hopeless the situation is. But this morning, we finally get to what we call the gospel. And it, it, it's what makes everything we've been looking at the last several weeks um, part of the gospel. Like, like, why now? Why did we have to go through all of that before we get here? And I think part of it, it comes down to um, the, the, um, something I, I remember when I was young, when, when I, my family would gather, we would be around for Christmas, you know how you watch Christmas movies and stuff like that. We always watch The Sound of Music. I mean, I can tell you right now, I have the whole Sound of Music uh, memorized. And so my brother and I would sing and mock it the entire time while my sisters would, you know, cry. And, you know, all, and so it was like, you know, this big family thing that we would do. Um, but there was this song, I mean, so it, it, it sort of typifies what a fundamental problem we have. I think humanity's always had this problem. We particularly, especially have it as Americans, and that is that we are not very good at receiving stuff. We believe everything comes with a price. I mean, you got to earn it or pay for it or somehow be worthy of it. I mean, we, I mean, we, we like giving, just really hard for us to receive, just to just be a recipient of something. And there's this song in The Sound of Music, Maria sings it as she finds herself sort of overwhelmed with the affections that the, the captain has for her as she's, as she's realizing it. And so she sings the song, and it's, I think it kind of describes how most of us feel when we come to a passage like this. The words of the song are this. She says, perhaps I had a wicked childhood or perhaps I had a miserable youth, but somewhere in my wicked, miserable past, there must have been a moment of truth. But for here you are standing there, uh, for, for here you are standing there loving me, whether or not you should. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good because nothing comes from nothing. Nothing ever could. So somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. I mean, we, we kind of cling to that, right? I mean, so, man, all right, so the gospel comes, God's in love, so there must be something. Oh, listen, I know, I know all the bad things I've done, but something, I must have, there must have been something that made me worthy or something that can make me worthy because nothing comes from nothing. Somehow there had to be a reason. God would have had to look down and seen something worth saving in me. That somehow I had an intrinsic value all on my own. But here, here's the thing. Here's the thing that I, I want you to hear this morning. What Paul's going to say in this passage, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 31, is that is absolutely not 
true when it comes to our relationship with God. There's nothing that you bring to the table. There's nothing that you did. There's, there's nothing that you did or can do to be worthy of the gift of grace that He freely offers you. And so, only place we're left in it is not to try to seek or find um, value where there isn't any. It is not to try to pay God back. It is, it is not to try to be worthy of what it is that He's done. It is simply to receive. And so, so I say all that, and I fear that in a crowd like this, in a town like this, in a place in the country like this, in a time of history like this, that these are all too familiar words. You say, I fear they don't, you know, they don't evoke the emotion or the awe or the wonder or the incredible overwhelmingness that it really should. I mean, maybe we take the words for granted. Maybe we've heard them so long we barely stop to consider that, what they truly mean when they're applied to us. So there's a whole bunch of words in this passage this morning. Words like justification and righteousness and redemption and grace and faith and this old word, King James word that the ESV brought back, propitiation. These, listen, when, they, when these words, that, and they get applied to us, it ought to knock our socks off. I mean, it ought to leave us speechless and breathless to truly understand what Paul saying this morning. So I'm going to pray here in a second. I'm going to read this passage. I'm going to pray that, that God would absolutely just catch us off guard by how wonderful and glorious and, and matchless His grace is. The, the truth of the offer of God through His Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. I, I, I pray that we'd be caught off guard by what Paul says. So, I, I'm going I'm to read it, um, beginning chapter 3, verse 21, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll get into it. So, so we, here's the way Paul writes it, chapter 3, verse 21. But now, maybe the greatest two words in all the Bible, but now. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. Well, by what kind of law? But by a law of works? No. 
but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or or is, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. So since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, I pray that you would, you'd overwhelm us this morning by these great truths. by an indescribable and irrational, incomprehensible love that you have shown to us enemies of the God who created us. And yet, Father, in your love, you came to save us, not at cost to us, but Father, at infinite cost to you. Help us to see that this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul calls this gospel in 1 Timothy 1 the glorious gospel of the blessed God. One old commentator, Tom uh, uh, Cranfield, says that it's the center, this passage is the center and the heart of the entire gospel. Martin Luther said that this is the chief point, the very central place of the epistle and the whole Bible. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote in the margin of his Bible at this very place, I am convinced today after these many years of Bible study, that these verses are the most important and precious in all the Bible. Beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul begins now to explain to us what the gospel is. He's told us that at the beginning of the letter, he's writing to the Romans, I can't wait to come to you. I'm coming to you because I want to preach the gospel to you because the gospel is the power of salvation. From God to all who believe, because in it the righteousness of God's revealed. Everything you need's revealed. And then he stops there and he begins this detour where he, where he outlines the history of humanity. Actually, he, he outlines the history of the sin of humanity, the, the downward spiral of sin of not just the pagan who worship idols, but the religious people who worship their own self-righteousness. He begins with them and then goes to you and talks about us. And finally, Paul points it at himself. And what he's done is he's made clear, he's tried to make clear who it is that you must be. And and, and, and more specifically, he's tried to show us that we are not what we must be. That we must be perfect. I mean, this is not, we're not talking about a human perfection here. What we're talking about is a perfection that is um, uh, a perfection as God is perfect. Jesus will say in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, you, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
not just human perfection. What is required of you is divine perfection. And what happens is, is the law comes and it says, so the law is holy and it's righteous and good. And it says you must be like God. You must be perfect. And yet what the law does is reveal that you are not it reveals that our whole life is sort of this sort of like this default pole vaulting mode. You know, I mean, think of, uh, you know, uh, the Matrix when Neo, when he first, you know, is going to make that jump, you know, and he jumps across it and he lands in the middle of the street. And we're trying to pole vault over the, over the chasm between us and God and we we fall and we crash and we get up and we try harder. I mean, it's like our life is one constant, um, you know, episode of the roadrunner, you know I mean? So we, 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 we keep trying harder and we keep getting destroyed. And when you're aware of what it is that you've done wrong, when you've come to the place of realizing, oh, okay, I am so broken, my whole life comprehensibly is stained and marred with sin. It is hard to believe that it is the gospel that comes and will answer you and not the law. It is hard to believe when you finally come to the place and go, okay, I know everything's wrong in my life. You expect the law to come along and go, okay, so here's what you do to begin to clean up your life. And yet that's not the answer. The answer comes to us in the gospel. See, what Paul knows is, and this is why he started in chapter 1, he said, I want to tell you the gospel, but you're at point A, and I know at point A you can't hear the gospel. So what I have to do is I have to tell you the law. I have to tell you what God's standard is, and I have to make sure you fully understand that you've never met God's standard and never will meet God's standard so that I can move you from point A to point B, this point B of understanding who you are in light of who God is. And it's only there that you can now hear the gospel. I mean, the basic function of the law is to reveal to us that we are not God. I mean, it brings us to our death. You know, like Adam, you know, in Genesis chapter 3, wanted to be God. The law exposes the lie that every single one of us believes at some point, some place in our life, that we can somehow be like God. And the law brings you to a place of showing you who you are and showing you who God is so that you cry out, who will deliver me? In fact, that's what he says in Romans 7. It's, it's then we know that we've heard the law. It's then we know that we've been prepared for the gospel because it, it tells us who we are not by revealing who God is. The, the law, you can think about it this way. It's like the little boy in the sixth sense. You know, that's what the law is. The law sees dead people. And we're like Bruce Willis. You know, we don't know we're dead. And here's the deal. The law comes and it demands, it demands of you what it cannot deliver to you. And so the law can never make you righteous. You, you can never do enough. You can never be right enough. You can never be in yourself 
holy enough to be righteous and to stand right before God. And so that's why this verse 21 begins with such good news. But now, if, if I can never do enough to stand right before God, if I can never be enough, if, listen, if I, are you saying I can never clean myself up enough? Yes. It's exactly what I'm saying. It's what Paul's saying. But, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. It's been made available. It's been demonstrated. It's been brought to clear light apart from the law. The law and the prophets, they bear witness to it. They were always looking for it. The, the, the greatest two words in all of Scripture, not just a change of subject here. You know what it is? It's a change of everything. It's a change of the world. It's the change of the cosmos. It's the change of the ages. Something new has come. See, in the Old Testament, what happened is you could be in relationship with God in the Old Testament, but it worked like this. You had to bring an atoning sacrifice. There had to be a sacrifice to atone for, to, uh, to, to, to uh, cover over your sins. You sinned. You're not holy. You try to come into the presence of a holy God. Something has to cleanse you. And that something was the death of something else. And in this case, in the sacrifices, it was the death of an animal, a bull or a, or a goat. And you brought an animal, and what, what, what happened is you would bring it in. And Leviticus gives you, you know, more detail than you want to know. It's, it's where you always quit when you're doing the read the, through the Bible. You're like, ooh, I'm out on this. It's the synagogue and the temple and the, and the place of meeting and the tent of meeting and there was this holy of holies, this, this, this place. and It was where the Ark of the Covenant sat, which was the law, the broken law. The law we could never live up to. And it sat there in the most holy place, but on top of that sat this thing called the mercy seat. And it was what mediated between the holy God and the broken people. And so once a year on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, you read all about it. In fact, this week, Yom Kippur is the celebration of the Day of Atonement. And the priest would go in, and, and, the, and the way that it described it, it was this one day, and it was this one day that was the culmination of all the the, the, the days before it in the year. And so, you know, because every time you came to, to worship God, every time you came into the presence of God, blood had to be shed, blood had to be sprinkled, sacrifice had to be made. But on the Day of Atonement, what happened is you brought these two goats. And the priest would cleanse himself, and then what he would do is he would take one of the goats, and he would slaughter the goat, and he would take the blood of the goat, and he would sprinkle that onto the mercy seat. That the shedding of blood and that the death of this animal would atone, would would for a moment cover over the sins of the 
people. And then what the priest would do is he would come out and he would, he would in a sense, sort of symbolically gather up all the sins of the people of the year. And he would go to the other goat. They called it the Azazel. It was the scapegoat. And he would place his hands on that goat and he would speak over that goat. He would confess onto the head of that goat all the sins of the people over the last year. Then they would take that goat and send it off into the wilderness as a symbol of their sin being removed from them. But you know what happened the very next day? Sacrifices began again because the people were sinful. In fact, you, you know, the way that it worked is you always had to bring a sacrifice to come into the presence of God because you weren't holy. God was holy. You, you weren't holy. You had to make sacrifice. I mean, you couldn't even, you know, wake up in the day and be having a great day and, and then a song on your lips and, you know, just swing by the, 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 the tent of meeting and go, you know, I just wanted to stop in and say thanks to God for all the blessings. Your thankfulness isn't enough. You'd have to bring a sacrifice. Because you're not holy. So in the Day of Atonement, two things happened. This, this wrath of God, the wrath towards sin, the, the righteous justice of God that the only right response towards sin is, is, is infinite and holy wrath. The wrath is, a, is appeased by the shedding of blood and the sins of the people are removed from them. And that's how you had a relationship with God in the Old Testament. Now what Paul says is the righteousness of God that's been manifested apart from the law. It's not, we don't do it. God is going to reveal his righteousness in another way. Not, not the way of Leviticus, not the way of the Old Testament. He's going to bring it in another way. Because that was just like rent. I mean, you were paying month to month. You, you could never satisfy the whole account. All you were doing was buying time. The, this owning, the, he's going to come, he's going he's to purchase, he's going to ransom, he's going to redeem once and for all, satisfy the whole amount. And he's going to do that through his son. The righteousness in Christ is that which provides complete forgiveness of sin it also clothes us in who Jesus is. For our sake, Paul says in Corinthians 5, for our sake, he, Jesus, became sin. He became sin. He knew no sin. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And then in verse 22, you hear this, this righteousness of God comes, it comes through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This, this sin, this, so it's, just, it's just like global, um, you know, a snapshot of your life. It's in the aorist. It, it means all the sin you've ever committed, you are committing, you will commit. Your whole life is a snapshot of sin. And yet then it moves and says you're falling short. This isn't, this is the, the continual falling short every day of the glory of God because of your sin. You continue, it's, like, it's like you're continually shooting arrows that fall short of the mark. So in verse 24, all of us, he says, are, are justified by His grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
It comes by faith. You, you believe, you, you have faith, and in, and in that you're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. To be justified is, is literally this. It's, it's God seated as a judge. His position is judge over the whole world. And he's declaring that you, despite you being sinful and stained by sin to your core, He looks upon you as judge and says, righteous, pardoned, forgiven. It's actually more than that. It's more than a pardon. It's more than the forgiving of past sins. What God does is he chooses to deal with you now as though you never were a sinner. He he chooses to treat you as though you are righteous. He will treat you, declare you something you are not because He's made the way for you to be. It's available to all, which means this you cannot outsend the grace of God, you cannot outsend His grace. We, we, we must come God's way, though. We must come through Jesus. Jesus is the only way. He's the only way that we can come. It is solely by grace. It means it's not a bribe. It's not a salary. It's not a prize. not a dessert. It's not something you deserve or, or earn. It is freely given. It, it, it means this, this grace. It means it is, it, it's a gift. It's, it comes without payment and without reason and without cause. It is the evidence of God's irrational, indescribable, uncomprehensible love, not because of who you are, but because of who God is. That's why it's unconditional. That's why it's available. That's, you wouldn't have access to it otherwise. He deals with us Because of his son Jesus, he deals with us in grace. There's an old story told about a lady who had her portrait taken by a photographer. She gets the proofs of the portrait. She hated him. She she storms the photographer's place, bursts the door open, and uh, she, she holds this up and she said, this picture doesn't do me justice. To which the photographer replied, man, with a face like yours, you don't need justice. You need mercy. (laughs) Praise God that he's dealt with us in his grace and not his justice. See, here's the deal. I'll say this real quick and I'm going to move on. But grace cannot exist. It cannot exist with human obligation. You cannot pay it back. You, you can't pay it back with, with your life, by cleaning up your life, by, you know, well, God's done all this for me. At least I can do is this for him. That you, you cannot, that, that's not grace. You've, you've no, you, you've made, it's no longer grace then. You can't pay God back with your guilt either. Think so many people, listen, you know, guilt, some people just try to ignore it until they can't or they rationalize it, but you spend your life trying to make up for it, you know, with remorse and, and, and penance and, and, and feeling bad. Listen, your guilt cannot coexist with grace. You can't pay God back with your guilt with how sorry you are. The only thing that frees us from that is, is the blood of Jesus, not how bad you feel, not how much right you do or promise to do or promise to pay back. 
It is solely what Jesus has done. You, you cannot, grace cannot coexist with human merit. It doesn't come to the best people. Grace comes and says there's no best people. It just comes. And it comes because look at verse 25. Verse 25. Whom God put forward, Jesus. He put Jesus forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now let me tell you what propitiation is. If you have the NIV, you, you, it says atoning sacrifice or sacrifice that atones or something like that. And it's the NIV's way of, of taking an old theological word, one that you know, is an old King James word, and saying, okay, nobody knows what that word means anymore. Let's try to give it some definition. And so they, they say atoning sacrifice. And, and that's, a, that's a good part of what propitiation means. And, and the, um, but it's not all of it. it, it it's a Greek word called um, hilestron. And it is a word that only shows up one other time, Hebrews 9.25. And, and it's the same word when it's used as a noun. It's used like this. It is the same word that in the Greek we, it comes from. Here's what the word means. It means the mercy seat. Here is what Paul is saying. Jesus comes... As the propitiation by his blood, he comes, he is the one that is the mercy seat. He is the one who comes and covers over us all our brokenness, all our failure, every way in which we haven't lived up to who we, he's the mercy seat. He comes and covers over us by his blood. where sins were covered. And it was covered because the shed blood was sprinkled on it. Now here is what happens. Jesus' blood is the one that is shed. He is the mercy seat. And so what he comes and in, 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 in his sacrifice on the cross, it, it comes with it for those who believe. It, it's the wiping away of your sin. It is, it is your cleansing. It is the, it is the white as snow part, if you can believe it. But the part we often miss is it's not just the taking of our sin and the covering over of our sin and the sacrifice, the dying for our sin. It is also in covering over us. Jesus steps in as the substitute and becomes the object of God's wrath. But propitiation means that Jesus, that through Jesus our sins are cleansed and God's wrath is turned away from us who deserve it and it is poured out on Jesus. Now I'll show you where this, I'll tell you where this shows up in Luke's gospel Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he is betrayed and will be arrested. He will endure mock trials that entire night. By mid-morning, he will be nailed to a cross. He will become a curse. Now, in Luke's Gospel, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, He's, he's praying. 
Remember the scene and the disciples, they keep falling asleep. He's like, can't you just, can't you stay and pray with me and for me? They keep falling asleep. And yet in Luke's gospel, it says that he, he, he anguishes, that he's at the anguish of sorrow to the point of death. And then he tells us that he, he sweats like drops of blood. That Jesus finds himself in his humanity in the garden that evening so distraught and so in anguish about the sacrifice that he is about to make, about the, about the death on the cross that is to come. And then you think, well, maybe it's because he was scared of the Romans, you know, and, or he, was, he, you know, he didn't want to be beaten. I mean, nobody wants to be beaten and, and, or, or, his, or his body nailed to a cross and stripped naked and mocked and humiliated. And you think, that would be enough to have me drop, sweat drops of blood and the night I would to be arrested. But that is not why Jesus sweats drops of blood. He's not afraid of any Romans. He's not afraid of any physical harm that would come to him, however great and gruesome it was, or humiliation. See, because Jesus knows knows that with a whisper, legions of angels would have come to his rescue. That's not what his anguish is about. You see a hint of it when he says in his prayer, Father, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. But not your will. Not my will, but your will be done. If there's any other way, then for me to drink this cup, but if there's not, I will. Well, what's the cup? Well, in the Old Testament, you find out it is the foaming cup of God's wrath waiting to be poured out on the creation that has rejected him. That in our sin we have rebelled against him and mocked him and created gods for ourselves. And you find in Jeremiah and in Job and in Isaiah and in Habakkuk and in Psalms and even in the Revelation that every drop of wrath will be poured out on all of those who are not righteous and who don't measure up. And here's what it is. Jesus is not afraid of the Romans. He's in anguish over the cup of wrath. And on the cross, Jesus takes that cup of wrath and he drinks it to the very last drop and then he declares, it is finished. Your justification, the cost of it, is God's wrath fully poured out on Jesus, the mercy seat that covers over you. He's the propitiation. That's why John will say in his letter in 1 John chapter 4, you want to know what love is? God is love, and, and love is shown in this. Not that you loved God first, but that he loved you, and that he sent, he says, this is love. He sent his only son 
to be the propitiation for your sins. Do you want to know what love is? You look at the cross, the beaten, dehumanized, humiliated, eternal Son of God, nailed to a cross, our scorn, but the object of God's wrath. And in verse 26, it tells us it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier. Just and justifier. He justified you, but God did not set His justice aside. He turned it upon Himself. The cross is the place where the judge takes onto Himself the judgment. John Murray, God loved the objects of His wrath so much. He loved you so much that He gave His only Son to the end that He, by His blood, should make provision for the removal of His wrath. He doesn't set His justice aside. He turns, he turns His justice on to Himself. So then he answers the objections. Well, what about boasting? Well, it's not, you, everything's changed. The whole world's changed. It's a whole new paradigm, whole new dynamics. He's going to spend the next couple of chapters unpacking what all of this means and answer six questions immediately. And then they can all be summed in this. You know, the, the, Martin Luther said, the question's asked, how can justification take place apart from works of the law? What do you mean I don't do anything? There's no way for me to be justified unless I do something. Paul says, no, it's not about what you do. It's about what Jesus has done. And the difference between the law of works and the law of faith, how do we, how do we uphold the law by, by faith? The, the works of the law, they're, they're done without grace. They're, un, they're done without faith. But the works of faith, we've been freed, we've been redeemed, we've been ransomed, we've been set free from the bondage. He uses this illustration, Martin Luther does. He says, an ape can cleverly imitate the actions of humans, but he is not therefore a human. If he became a human, it would undoubtedly be not by virtue of the works by which he imitated man. An ape can't imitate himself into becoming a man. It would have to happen by virtue of something else, namely a miraculous act of God. Then having been made a human, then he performs the works of humans in a proper fashion. You're not working to become something you're not. Your workings now flow naturally out of who you are. See, this is, Paul's talking about identity here. What does it mean? Faith can be summed up in where is your identity. The gospel brings this radical identity shift. It is no longer what do I think when I look at myself. What's faith? It's a radical shift. It is no longer saying what do I think of me when I look at myself, but you move to saying what does God see when he looks at me? And you know what God sees when he looks at you? If by faith you've trusted Jesus, he sees Jesus. See, our lives, your life, my life, our lives are never the basis of our righteousness. Salvation comes solely by faith. It has nothing to do with what we do. It has everything to do 
with what he did. Now, I'll tell you where this gets tricky because in the church, in a church like this, we'll often say things like, listen, we know we're not saved by works. We're, we're saved by faith. But undoubtedly, many of us probably unknowingly turn faith into a work. Sometimes we think of faith as some sort of feeling about God or maybe some intense attitude of surrender or uh, you know, some certain level of, of certainty or confidence that we have to get to. So if I maintain that confidence, faith, is the, faith becomes that thing I do to get my hands on God's righteousness. But that's not how the Bible describes it. You know how the Bible talks about faith? It is received simply as a gift. Faith is simply coming to God with empty hands. We met this week, Tuesday. We have our teaching team meeting. Ricky Garner said, you know, he says, when you begin to measure and qualify your faith or quantify its strength, you're making it a work. See, it is not, it is not your faith. It is not the strength of your faith, the quality of your faith, the, Maturity of your faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. One old writer. The man who has faith is the man who's no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was. He does not look at what he is now and he does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and he rests on that alone. Dallas Willard calls it waving the white flag. Faith is the white flag. I surrender. I recognize I've got nothing left to fight with. I I've lost. And the great news is, someone has won. They've won you. It is the object of our faith. It is Jesus. Let me ask you this morning. Have you, have you come to a place where waving the white flag? Simply receiving what you do not earn or could deserve and never will. Have by faith you put yourself under. So Jesus is my shield. He is my mercy. He is, he is that which I rest under to wash me clean, to make me whole. to set me right with God so that I no longer am an, am an enemy, but I know what it is to be His beloved child. Have you done that? Have you trusted Him for that? I pray that God would do what only He can do this morning, and that is to work faith into our hearts. Not that we would work at faith, that God would produce a faith in us to receive what He has done. And would you pray with me? Father, would you grant faith this morning to receive what you have done through your Son, Jesus? We love you because you first loved us. We come to you in prayer because you've made the way through your Son, Jesus, who's seated at the right hand at your right hand, even now, covering over us and making 
intercession for us and saying about us, he's mine and she's mine. And... Father, you've saved us through your Son when we had no hope at all of saving ourselves. So, Father, I pray this morning no one would walk out of here without having raised the white flag to say, I receive what it is that you have given, your gift of grace, the redemption through your Son, Jesus, the sacrifice, the covering. Father, we ask this the only way we can. In the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.